Metropolis podcast, which is associated with HessianFirm.com and HateMeditations.com. Welcome to Necropolis. I am Jason, also known as Lone Goat from Goatcraft. Today we have a kind of outside of the box episode in regard to this uh, uh, podcast. Um, I thought it'd be really, really cool just to kind of have a discussion on classical music. And you know, I listen to a lot of classical. Shelly listens to some classical. And I know quite a few metalheads out there have their choice selection of classical music, usually the dark and brooding kind like Wagner or something like that. So uh, I thought it'd be really great just to have a discussion on this. So uh, welcome back, Mr. Shelly co-host. Hello. Yeah. Good to be here. Thank you. Yes, sir. And our main guest today for this discussion is a uh, personal friend of mine. I went to college. I took one of his courses um, in music, and uh, I ended up having a great friend afterwards. So uh, I do have a, a really, really cool guy. It's uh, Emmanuel Godoy. Um, he is a music professor, a percussionist, the music director of the Changer, Chamber Music Ensemble, Lux Music Guy. Um, all around Jack of, you know, all trades in regard to uh, music. He teaches it, he performs it, and he conducts it, as well as he has an extensive background, which anyone can read on luxmusicai.org. Um, so welcome to the program, Mr. Emmanuel Godoy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's, yes, sir. Really looking forward to this episode. Um, you know, it's kind of Different. I, I've broken every rule that I laid down for this podcast. I had a, a no politics rule, but then I ended up having a politics episode. Um, and one of the rules like I had was all episodes have to be related to metal, but now I'm doing a classical music episode. So it seems like any rule that I have in place is very arbitrary. So I know at one point I said no more round tables, but here we are doing a kind of round table. So um, I do apologize for the, the, the kind of paradoxes that I put in place here in regard to this podcast, but I was really wanting to chat a little bit about classical music today, uh, especially with someone who is very educated in it. So you went to uh, Juilliard, um, I believe at one point, Mr. Godoy, that you had actually performed as a student under uh, Bernstein. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, well, it was a master class. Uh, Bernstein would always come to uh, Juilliard when he was in town conducting the Philharmonic. So it's basically just walk across the street, you know, walk across 63rd Street and uh, from from uh, Lincoln Center to the Juilliard School. And um, so he, he conducted a master class uh, on Mahler 7th. He was conducting it that week with the Philharmonic. And uh, and I, I was chosen to play timpani. So, um, it, you know, it's a really incredibly meaty part, uh, very prominent on a lot of auditions. Uh, and um, and so it was it was a real great pleasure to be in the same room with him. Um, he didn't actually conduct because it was a conducting class, and he he just, you know, just depends on the I don't know the price they pay him. What I don't know what his mood. Um, there are situations where he would you know get up and and and, and uh, you know and, and and show this is how you do it type of thing. But he stood in the back with his entourage and um, and so yeah, it was it was quite a thing to be in the room with him and to, to especially him knowing. Um, you know, Mahler so intimately, I, I, he kind of once alluded to the fact that he, as if he almost wrote the music himself, that, well, almost Lenny, yeah, right. <laughs> no, not really. Yeah. Uh, no, he really, he really, uh, he did a great, in the 60s, he did a great resurgence of, um, of Mahler's music. 
and uh, personally met with uh, Mahler's widow in New York at the time, Alma. And, um, and so he, he was really responsible for a, a great resurgence of recordings and, and Mahler's presence in the, in the 20th, 21st century. So, but it was, yeah, other than him, uh, George Salty came and, and uh, played under him. And so, um, th- you know, th- those were good student experiences. I also played under some very great conductors, you know, in rehearsal and concerts. So um, that kind of added to my uh, plethora of uh, experience, yeah. Yeah, I saw that uh, you had performed under Maxim Sostakovich, which everyone knows who uh, Sostakovich is, the composer, Dmitry Sostakovich. Um, very dark and brooding music. And I know we've personally had some discussions on this composer, you know, just, you know, having lunch together. But uh, um, can you talk a little bit about how that experience was for you? Did he uh, elaborate, you know, personal details about his father um, while you're playing under him? Yeah, most certainly. Um, although Maxim is his name, Maxim Shostakovich. He conducts a lot in New York, and he would conduct, uh, I think, conduct the Juilliard Orchestra. But at the time, uh, there was a uh, trumpet-turned conductor, uh, Jerry Schwartz, who was also a Juilliard grad. Um, he had a, um, uh, he met somebody with deep pockets, and he started a festival in the summer in New Jersey. And I was at Juilliard at the time, and my teacher um, was kind of a close friend. I'd worked with Jerry when he was, of course, in the Philharmonic. So this was called the Waterloo Music Festival. It doesn't exist anymore, and it probably existed for maybe five years, something like that, till the money ran out. Um, but it was a great experience. We had principals from the um, Metropolitan Opera and principals from the New York Philharmonic, and then it was the sections would be filled out with you know, students, sort of like a, like a Tanglewood type of thing. Um, and uh, uh, Aspen Music Festival, those are the same, you know, formats, um, much more intimate. And so Shostakovich uh, came and conducted the Fifth Symphony of his father. And yes, he did um, make some, uh, you know, in, in, um, allusions to what, you know, what his father wanted. And I say that with all due respect, because I wasn't there. But, you know, our memories are always clouded by feelings and emotions and sentiments. So, you know, when he said, well, my father wanted it this way, he wanted the, like the Russian army, you know, marching in the Red Square, you know, and in the Allegro after the, you know, in the first movement, um, you know, it, it was sort of like, yeah, gotta take a grain of salt, grain of salt, because we don't really know. We weren't there. And okay, Maxim, if you say so, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we you know, uh, I mean, you know, it just kind of depends interpretation, you know, and some people want it another way, just because you said you were there in the room with your father said you wanted it one way. You know, some people, you know, sometimes composers, sometimes conductors can help composers out to clarify their tempos and interpretations. Not all composers are the best interpreters of their own music. Uh, Stravinsky was, uh, uh, kind of one of those Copeland sometimes, you know, they conducted their own music, but sometimes they weren't the, the greatest interpreters of their own music. So, um, uh, yeah, but he was very, very kind. Um, uh, I, I'm sure he had a lot more dark experiences that he could have ever shared, um, you know, on stage, but, but that was one particular talking about tempo of, uh, of the first movement. So that was, that was kind of neat, you know, and when conductors are up there and they don't, uh, talk too much about just their own personal experiences for the sake of the personal experiences. We always appreciate that, uh, me included. So if it has to do with the, 
you know, something that can can enlighten us musicians as to how a passage goes or the meaning behind it, that's always good. Um, otherwise, it's sort of like, you know, talk less, move your hands more. We want to get out of here and to, 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 to dinner or something like that, you know, so. Yeah, Sostakovich is a really interesting character. And I know from our discussion, we talked quite a bit about it. That one time I went to uh, Los Palapas, I believe. And uh, um, we were you, were you were talking about like the back when Sostakovich was, you know, composing under Stalin and the friction between him and Stalin. And at one point, uh, the, the black coats could have came from him at any moment and threw him into a gulag or something. So um, really, really hard time for that guy. And plus, at one point in time, uh, he was uh, conducting and uh, everyone was pretty much starving. They resulted to eating cats and stuff. It was really, really sad stuff. And, but uh, Bernstein, uh, Bernstein was the, uh, the champion of Sostakovich here in the U.S. He really uh, elevated that composer here. It's like, hey, you know, there's this very downtrodden, awesome, you know, Russian composer, you know, under Stalin. And so it was kind of strange, though, like at the end of, you know, after Stalin died, I believe uh Sostakovich was really propped up in the Soviet Union you know at first he was discarded um I think it was a like a opera or something on uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth and yep. Stalin laughed at it um uh, so he was discarded early on in his career in Russia but after Stalin died he was really elevated up high yeah and and you know uh is uh Shostakovich really filled in the gap where he needed he he was not bitter about the fact that you know as you mentioned i mean he he tells a story or even some of his comrades that came to the united states you know that he would you know be basically sleeping out inside outside of his apartment you know in the foyer so if the if the guy you know if the men in black shirts came it wouldn't you know they wouldn't terrorize his family i mean that's that's pretty you know incredible um but uh, he was able to compose a lot of film music and very noteworthy film uh, film music, more little you know on the on the kind of lighter side. Uh, but also you know theater music and and m- m- I would say generally music on the lighter side. Other than his great symphonies, you know he's a great symphonist. He took over where Mahler left off, so to speak. Um, but um, but his music is very noteworthy. Um, you know, even even some of it, you know, like I mentioned some of it, it's more lighthearted. Um, uh, he wrote some jazz suites, of course, all his um, his, you know, little film music that he wrote. I, I shouldn't re- say it's trite in that way, little, but, you know, it's it's not very well known. I, I, I as a conductor, would love to be able to to program some of that. And of course, money always holds us back. So uh, but we would dig into that. I've had a couple of people. Uh, friends of mine that have suggested, you know, hey, when when can we when can you program this and we can play this? I said, well, you know, it's it's on the back burner. Um, would like love to get to it, but um, uh, still, uh, you know, Shostakovich in light of uh, Stalin, uh, Prokofiev was a very different. Of course, Stravinsky left and uh, before the the revolution, in 1911, and so um, Prokofiev was was a more um, uh, he was he he was more uh, I would just say uh, he he kind of lent his talent more to just staying out of the way. Uh, and not to say his music is not as um, as a shocking as Shostakovich. He just uh, he just composed a different vein uh, of music, and um, uh, so he 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 was 
you know, more con- more conformist, but that doesn't say anything about his talent or his, you know, uh, the depth of his work. He just happened to, you know, kind of stay out of the way. And so, um, yeah, uh, you know, regimes always come after the artist. Uh, and so, um, you know, you got to watch your back on that, you know, censorship and et cetera. So, but uh, you, like you mentioned, Jason, um, yeah, Macbeth kind of uh, drew some, um, ire from the from the dictator and uh and he'd be very careful just to go because uh, again something could offend uh stalin and and he could be you know whisk away so um and 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 on a, on whose on whose artistic premise <laughs> you know politically or you know it's just you know composers have always too I mean, verity wrote nabucco um and uh and you know there's a famous uh chorus in there uh Valpensiero, uh, which is kind of like a, you know, we talked about in, in Pagliacci, a play within a play. Well, there was oppression in Nabucco being, you know, the uh, Nebuch- the Jews under the Hebrews under Nebuchadnezzar um, in the Old Testament, but also the um, the Italians under oppression from the Austrians. So when his music became very powerful because the people could, they could uh, relate to it very well. Um, they could relate to the scene of the, you know, the Hebrew slaves you know, and being, you know, uh, uh, imprisoned, so to speak, and oppressed. And so that had a very powerful, um, uh, you know, um, uh, move towards uh, making it very popular, his music very popular. And and again, not to say because it's popular, it's any less trite than, you know, or, or any, you know, it's still as powerful uh, and it's still as, as uh, monumental as, you know, anything else, um, you know, we we could talk all day on on popular verse, uh, you know what what remains to be seen to be what is great, right? But uh, and again, music is always it's in the eye of the beholder, be like beauty. It's whatever you consider to be beautiful, and then, you know we have certain people who have other opinions, higher opinions, so to speak, um, you know. But uh, but ultimately, it rests with the individual and what they consider you know beautiful. So. Um, it's not necessarily a matter of popularity, thank God. Yeah, yeah, and we see the same thing in metal. Um, there's, of course, the popular side of metal, and we tend to dig really deep into the underground, into uh, Hades, <laughs> the underworld <laughs> of extreme metal, to find what we consider being the the nethermost awesome uh, pieces of music in extreme metal, which I, I know you're not really into metal, you're more into prog, and prog was kind of your gateway into classical music, so can you talk a little bit about that before we start jumping into some of the topics here? Sure, well, um, I, I was, uh, being a young lad and, you know, very into music, I, I think my ears were perked because I had an older sister who had uh, just a nice collection. I mean, of course, she was using the Beatles, but um, collection of other things, you know, Jethro, Jethro Tull, Emerson and Palmer, um, some early Elton John um, and uh, and Cat Stevens, you know. So all that stuff, I kind of, you know, at very very young age, I was listening to that. Um, and so I think that um, I, I don't know if it was the outer or the inner that you know that spurned me on to you know going further and listening to classical music you know, it was the influence from the outsider was already, you know, embedded in me, as I would say, by the, just the, you know, deterministic will of God, you know, like, this is what you're going to do in life, you know, type of things. I have no choice, you know, that's all I've done is music. But in any case, uh, I was, um, you know, spurned on to, to listen to different types of music and to listen to what 
um, what these uh, progressive uh, rock musicians were, were listening to themselves. Um, I know a lot of them were classically trained. You have Tony Banks from Genesis, a keyboardist, um, Rick Wakeman of uh, Yes, uh, and, and, um, Keith Emerson of uh, Emerson Lake and Palmer. Um, you know, they, they were well, very well trained classically and, um, and, uh, and very sophisticated. Um, I have a, I'll go off on a little tangent. I have a, a friend in Paris and, um, he's, uh, he's done some wonderful arrangements of some of these bigger suites like Genesis Supper's Ready and, uh, and some of, of, of Yes. And, um, and he did also one of, of Emerson Lake and Palmer, a suite called Tarkas. And, um, and he just did something recently I saw on, on, a, on YouTube, uh, with a violinist. And, um, it was, uh, uh, Bartok, Allegro Barbaro. And, and I had, heard, I had initially heard that piece, that theme by Emerson Lake and Palmer. And I didn't realize it was embedded in one of their first albums. And, uh, Symphonietta of Janacek, um, Knife Edge, you know, that's the tune Knife's Edge. And of course, in pictures at an exhibition, they did a full rendition, almost the pictures of the exhibition, which I was very lucky to actually see them performing in concert a couple of times. So um, born out of that era, you don't really find those big progressive groups, um, you know, around much anymore. They just, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, uh, if it's the, the, the dying interest in, you know, and in, in the bigness. And that's what drew me to this type of music was the bigness. Uh, you like this, Jason, you like to say, you know, uh, metal and, and, you know, and well, maybe progressive rock here, but, you know, along with, uh, is it, kind of tied to, you know, some of the heavier, you know, Wagner, Bruckner, you know, Stokovic, Mahler, you know, that emotional content. Um, well, I found the same thing, you know, in, in these large suites, which kind of captivated me. And that probably led me to listen to something a little bit more than five minute songs. I was able to listen to Mozart, you know, Stravinsky, et cetera. Um, and so uh, I think that was my entrance into classical music. And I wouldn't say that, you know, some of the, some of the experiments like with King Crimson, if you listen to like Lark's tongue and aspic, you know, I mean, that is incredibly harsh. Uh, you know, I could listen to it today, but if, you know, if you know the piece and it's, it's long, and it's an odd time signature, but it, it's really the sounds are really Robert Fripp was really, uh, you know, delving in some some dark sounds there. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I think you know, I, I can't trace the, you know, metal and, and you know, and, and know exactly what a lot of metal players, you know, what their repertoire is, what their what their input is from. But you can certainly hear uh, I don't listen to much metal. I don't listen to any metal. But, you know, that's not to say, you know, just, you know, nothing against the art. It's just, I just don't listen to it. Um, but uh, the, the, the little that I've heard, I can hear, I can hear, you know, screeching sounds. I can hear the same type of thing that, you know, King Crimson was doing in the 70s. So um, there's always something that you can find in music that has been borrowed gratefully and, um, and, and, and so, you know, there, there's always something, you know, some, uh, some re reason to look at this new art, you know, I think metal is pretty new, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Metal, metal would be, you know, everyone considers, you know, Black Sabbath being the first metal band, right? But there was also like Blue Cheer back then. And what really separates Blue Cheer um, from Black Sabbath is, you know, both bands use distortion. 
but Black Sabbath had more gravitas to it, where Blue Cheer was more of, along the lines of the what was going on in the mainstream consciousness of pop music and things like that. There's one thing that I really want to mention real quick before uh, I, I have Shelly ask a question here, is that uh, um, we touched upon metal, and there's, there's some correlations with classical music and metal, of course, just like there's correlations with uh, uh, Prague, as you had mentioned, you know, with uh, Musorsky's uh, pictures out of exhibition um being performed by a prog band but uh something i do want to bring to your attention which i don't think i've ever told you before is uh there's this guy up in canada um uh, i think his first name is the french name it's like luke lemay or something like that from gorguts the death metal band gorguts he is heavily inspired by shostakovich and with that he has actually gotten into uh composing himself and he writes these little string quartets and things in the vein of Sostakovich, which I think is really fascinating. You know, here's a death metal guitarist, you know, he's just really into it to such an extent where he's actually composing, you know, classical pieces um, in the vein of a prominent, you know, uh, composer that we were just talking about a little bit earlier. So I definitely want to bring that to your attention. Um, I can kind of hear some of the uh, avant-garde aspects of Gorguts, his death metal band, um, assimilating some uh, kind of the the motifs that uh, Shostakovich would kind of do like uh, they, they really, it's, it's a really experimental death metal band. And uh, I, I definitely should show you some of their stuff sometime. Um, Shelly. Yeah. yeah Shelly, do you have a question for professor Godoy here? Oh, well, first I was just going to jump in on the, the progressive um, rock conversation uh, and also raise uh, King's King Crimson's red as another really good example of that. Cause that's a very, exactly. Um, yeah. It's a very dark, harsh, dissonant album. Uh, but it's like 1972, it's very early on as well. But the the, the thing I find interesting about Progressive Rock, um, a Gentle Giant, uh, King Crimson, Yes, Genesis, all of that is, the, the highs are very high in terms of like artistic achievement, but also the lows are quite low sometimes <laughs> where they don't necessarily, <laughs> don't necessarily achieve what they might have been going for or it becomes a bit too esoteric for its own good. Um, and I think... Um, as a, as a layman to sort of modern classical, by that I mean sort of post-1950, although that's probably not considered modern anymore. Um, it sometimes has a, I have a similar reaction in that um, they're going for something that's um, a bit akin to modern art as well, where there is a message buried in there, but it becomes too clouded and obscured for it to be fit for sort of popular consumption, um, unlike, you know, your standard kind of, of classical works that have that sort of mass appeal where um just the, the meaning or the intention of the artist becomes a bit buried in what i like to call musical in jokes which is basically just um music for musicians um because the layman can't quite grasp what it is they're going for and it comes across as sort of you know random segments of noise or sounds that aren't don't really cohere to anything hmm. But yeah, that was just a comment I had. But um, just to segue into uh, one of the questions I was going to ask is as well is the thing that always strikes me about classical music is as compared to other contemporary music that um, sort of aspires to that level of kind of ambition. You sort of mentioned the size and scope of progressive rock. And obviously we could say the same for metal. There's some forms of electronic music that do the same and jazz, obviously. Um, but the thing that always strikes me about classical is it sticks largely to the same uh, family of instruments. Um, the I wanted to ask specifically about the evolution of, say, the orchestra, which 
although we know over the sort of romantic period it kept growing and growing in size and more sections were added uh, to become louder and bigger and you know Wagner and then Mahler and things just kept getting heavier and more expansive but it's still you know the string section the horn section um the symphony drums there's not that much experimentation in terms of different timbres or sounds um so i kind of wanted to ask how has that evolved over the last few decades and um is there more to do is there is there stuff that i'm just not aware of or um just need to sort of research more uh, yeah, it's a great question um, and a great observation on your part, too, because um, I would say that, you know, that we talked about this, too, in, in class. You can remember, Jason, that we the dilemma of the 21st century was, you know, man coming out of, you know, this high romanticism and um, I mean, artists, I should say, uh, in all, all, all arts. And, and like, where does it go next? I mean, Bernstein was probably the, the greatest uh inquisitor of, of this question he did a series of, of lectures called the norton lectures um and um and you can see them on youtube but you know and he was speaking to a very uh, sophisticated audience he wasn't speaking to you know his young persons uh are the omnibus crowd he was just explaining music he was asking some really deep deep philosophical questions because he was involved in this in this malaise of like what where do we go where do we go now you know he actually um, there's an interview with Pete Townsend. Pete, he, he actually, he, Pete Townsend says, when Pete Townsend wrote Tommy, Bernstein says, what have you written? What have you written? I screamed at him. You know, like, this is great, you know? And, and so, you know, he, but here you have a rock artist, you know, with, you know, and Whistle being, you know, he was a brass player. And so he brought the brass instruments into Tommy, brought in the quadrophenia. Um, you know, so I think part of it is, is you know, artists always looking for the, the new medium, not only in the sound, but in the compositional structure. So, for instance, um, Jason, you mentioned uh, Rapart, and he has a piece called Fratres, um, which uh, I've actually played with my group. Uh, he, it, it's an octet, and so it's wind instruments and, and a percussionist, but it's been arranged probably like 16 different ways <laughs> spliced and diced you know it's just such a great idea because it's not written really for compositionally it's not really written for a specific uh, group of instruments you can write it for strings or you can write it for winds and strings you know type whatever you know, brass or you know choir or whatever but the idea is a compositional idea behind it is that it's it's minimalist and and it's it's also reaching back into the Estonian, you know, um, the, uh, the fabric of, of that society, um, sort of like, uh, as well, um, this kind of Gregorian chant type of, you know, uh, ancient vocal music type of thing. So I, I guess to round out the question, there are an answer to it. I think composers are looking for um, different ways to structurally uh, convey their musical ideas. Okay, minimalism is is one. You can think about. Uh, uh, you can use uh, Steve Reich for for an example. Music for eighteen musicians. A very eclectic um, group of musicians. I don't know if either of you are familiar with it, but it's, it's an incredible piece. Uh, lasts almost like an hour, and um, it doesn't like minimalist. It doesn't have um, an underlying melody. You won't go out singing the melody. There are quite a lot of different melodies, but the melody is not developed and the harmonies are really not developed like in a cycle, circle, like a bebop, you know, uh, like a lead sheet, you know, it's going, 
you know, from uh, C to G to D to, you know, F sharp, whatever, there's no real, there is a pattern, but, you know, it's not, that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is, of course, using the, the, the musical ideas and weaving it through the instruments he's got. So, for instance, he's got some woodwind players, like bass clarinet. Uh, there's actually, I think, four singers, um, six percussionists, I'm not mistaken, uh, a couple pianos. Um, and some other instruments, I, I, you know, I think some string instruments as well. So a very eclectic group of, of uh, musicians. And, and what, what he's trying to achieve through that is our effects. And, and I think it's something, you know, very, very well noted. Um, I am not privy to, uh, you know, in my ensemble to just, you know, we, we don't do Mozart. And with all due respect to Mozart, I could do Mozart, but um, other people are doing Mozart. And I have the kind of the heart, the the vision to do something other than that. If I can put a plug in for my own group here, Luke Muzikai, um, I, I hear other things and, and, and I don't think it's so much, you know, my legacy, what I want to do as a conductor or as, you know, put out there, but I think it's more of the legacy of the composers that I want to bring to the forefront, to the, you know, to the stage. And uh, again, we're not relying on ticket sales. So, you know, I can kind of do whatever I want. <laughs> um, that helps. Um, uh, what well, we are, we're relying on, of course, our public funds, our funds that you know to keep our our, our vehicle moving. But um, so uh, you know, I would rather have a you know a, 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 like a panorama of all these different types of ensembles um, and and present those on stage as opposed to you know doing the standard repertoire like that. You know, that's just good. That's just me. Um, I could do the standard work repertoire, but, you know, I prefer much more to investigate, you know, other, other means of, you know, musical expression, you know, through ensembles, through, you know, uh, whatever, it's a composition or whatever it is like that. But, uh, but that's a great, that's a great point, a great observation that you brought up. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, it, for the future of music, we're going to go, you know, just more. Uh, more diversity as well as uh, as far as the instrumentation combinations things like that. Um, so that that's really important. That's really important. I think where, where music is going uh, compositionally, I, I wouldn't I, I I wouldn't know where to begin to comment. You know, because that's what composers do, and and we you know as a conductor, as a performer, I just uh, try to bring to light what they you know want to say on the page. So I, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Well, um, no, yeah, I think you raised another really um, interesting point there as well, because even even to the outsider, it's kind of apparent that the classical music world is sometimes, um, what's the word, constrained by the legacy of, you know, the canon, the Mozarts, the Beethovens or whatever, because that's what people mm -hmm. want to hear, even though it's a few centuries on. Um, and you're sort of saying, you know, you're, you're trying to push some new stuff or some more kind of contemporary stuff that um, maybe might take the music in a different direction but is that still that's still the picture at the moment is that in order to you know be a functioning orchestra that, that, that you know makes money and sells tickets you still have to you know tick the boxes of the the pieces that people expect to hear um and that kind of is to the detriment of you know putting some new stuff out there or you know popularizing some more contemporary composers um, yeah, that's, that's a big, big dilemma. I mean, I, I don't, um, you know, you know, and of course, well, I, I, yeah, I won't talk about, I won't talk about our local uh, dilemma here in San Antonio, but 
laboratory is, is, is the question. Of course, that's funding. But um, I, I think the bigger orchestras with more funding can get away with um, uh, programming, depending on the conductor, programming music. I think Dudamel is doing that in L.A. Um, you know, they brought this uh, Danzon by Marquez into the repertoire and, you know, everyone's kind of gone ape crazy over that. Um, you know, sometimes New York Philharmonic will do a series of, you know, new composers or things like that. Um, but you, you do always have to, the audience, the paying audience is, is expecting to hear the greats. I mean, you go hear Duke Ellington and you want to hear Take the A-Train, you know, but my point in, in, even if I could pull some Mozart or Beethoven or, you know, uh, some more well-known composer, um, I would definitely always um, vary my menu. Um, I would make my audience eat their vegetables, <laughs> you know, because uh, that's what, um, you know, that's what's going to make them healthy. That's, you know, if you keep hearing the same thing over and over and over, um, you're, you're going to get sick and, pla- you know, just, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, docile to the sounds that you're accustomed to hearing. Um Somebody said, "Who was it?" Said, uh, "You know, all all uh, great music was once new music, um, and so we have to we have to allow time to uh, and attention, and you know, to to judge, be the judge of what's going to be great. Um, I mean, obviously, some stuff is like, yeah, you can listen to it, like, well, you know, it didn't really impress me. I'll listen to it again. I'll give it another shot." you know, and see how it goes. And, that, and that's fine too. And sometimes the second shot is like, wow, I didn't hear that the first time. And yeah, I'm really impressed now. Um, but, uh, but we really, I think the way music is going, I, I think, you know, orchestras really need to, to think about that, um, to think about the direction, uh, especially after the pandemic, um, you know, their, their value, their, their, um, uh, their purpose in, in the community in society um, it's been, it's, everything has been reset. And, and I think, um, you know, people want to hear something fresh. I mean, I, I wish no ill on any of my musician friends. You know, it was sad. I lost a lot of money as a performer. Hallelujah. There was no nutcracker for a year. <laughs> you know, it was, it was kind of like, yeah, there's, there's a reset here. You know, it's like, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's reinvestigate what's important. Um, and so maybe, with this reset, musically speaking, after the pandemic, we can, as musicians, we can start to, um, you know, uh, gain the attention of, of different pieces with the audience. And, and maybe they've been weaned off a little bit too much of the same diet for the past 150 years or so, you know, like 200 years. Um, you know, maybe we can present some new things and, uh, and their ears will perk up with that. So we yeah. can hope for the best. Yeah, certainly. Um, one thing, you know, just to critique the local area with the San Antonio Symphony is, you know, I, I understand there's budget issues and currently they're on strike and they're canceling the programs of the season because, you know, the, the musicians are being paid pennies. Um, and uh, one way they've tried to attract people is having really cookie cutter repertoire. You know, you can look at any season from the past, you know, 10 or plus years from the San Antonio Symphony, you can see like the, the primary guy is Beethoven over and over and over and over the same symphonies. And uh, the, they do take chances here and there, but it's still kind of within the, uh, the mainstream canon. Like, you know, they might play a uh, not as known, you know, symphony by Shostakovich, but they don't really delve into, you know, further, you know, 
obscure composers or anything like that. Not, you know, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra does not have budget problems. Um, and they, they do take some risk here and there. Um, but a lot of their stuff is also kind of cookie cutter. But um, I've actually driven all the way up to Dallas just to watch uh, Bruckner's eighth perform there. Yeah. And uh, it's something the San Antonio Symphony can never do. Number one, they don't have the, the sheer amount of musicians to pull that off. Number two, they're too cautious about, you know, if we're playing this, you know, less popular uh, composer, which Bruckner is pretty freaking, you know, popular nowadays, but uh, um, you're, you're not going to draw as many people as you would with uh, Tchaikovsky or Beethoven or Mozart. Um, so I, I, I do uh, share the sentiment that you have with Lux Music Eye, your, your chamber music ensemble of wanting to branch out and going to uh, a lot of like obscure uh, temporary contemporary composers um, and showing that to people and letting time be the judge of whether this should, you know, remain in the canon or not, or, you know, perhaps just share some different musical expression that people have not heard before, just to open up their perception quite a, you know, a little bit more than they would from a normal symphony, you know, performing cookie cutter repertoire. Yeah. Um, I am, um, I, I, I personally, like the idea of of um, just looking at um, you know the music for what it's worth you know just intrinsically organically if you want to say um, it, I, I you know composers and conductors like to do you know themes and um, I I've done a concert women composers uh, there's some very fine women composers just in New York I mean uh, the 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 you know, put a plug in for my my group but. Um, we were set to before the pandemic to do a concert of music uh, almost exclusively of Texas composers, and um, and I I could program concerts you know down the road for you know years on just good Texas composers um, that are that are just noteworthy that are you know very uh, you know very deserving of of uh, stage attention um, so. Uh, you know, I can mention Nathan Felix, um, uh, uh, who's doing some really neat things with media, Austin-based. Um, Joe Love, who I've worked, uh, I've done some of his music, also Austin-based. Um, the next concert we were doing some music of uh, Edna Ligoria, um, and um, and 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 she's uh, she's here in San Antonio. Um, but you know, they're they're just people that um, that, that have something to say. And, and musically and, and, you know, artistically. And, and I really feel, you know, it, it's a joy. It's a burden. I mean, it's, it's something like on my shoulders and my heart, but it's, it's a joy to bring this new music to, to light and let people say, wow, you know, I, I've never heard that before. Um, and, and also I like to record uh, my, the music we, we perform. That way I'll be able to, um, you know, for posterity's sake, people can go back and listen to the concert uh, we use very, you know, very good uh, uh, video videography and sound, so it's preserved in a very, um, you know, high definition, um, uh, you know, setting. So, um, yeah, we've got to we've got to step up to the to the plate. And you know, there's one thing. I, I was in New York, uh, and uh, one time I we went there for my honeymoon, and um, the Vienna Symphony, Vienna Philharmonic was playing, and I mean they could be playing anything. I want to go hear them because of the integrity of the musicians, but they happen to be playing the fifth and sixth symphony of Beethoven back to back, you know, so that's like a prime rib and a, and a, um, and pork chops, you know, I don't know some, you know, just great two big, big pieces back to back. And, you know, 
but uh, but it w- it was fine. I fortunately didn't get it here, but the the Fifth Symphony um, missed the first part. But um, but uh, you know, uh, it it tends to be a little that the meal tends to be a little on the heavy side. You know, two Beethoven symphonies. Um, you know, I I could, would like to hear something thrown in there. You know, a little dressing. You know, a little spice that I'm not you know uh, aware of. Um, that's always the things that make you know. Uh, Thai food or this restaurant or, you know, Indian food, you know, that one spice that you're not aware of that's unique to that, you know, to that uh, uh, culinary, uh, you know, talent. So um, it, it's always good to throw something in there to, uh, to whet the, the people's appetite musically, huh? Expand the palate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, if, if you want to eat burgers and fries and that's your business, um, it's not very healthy, but uh, it, it's, you know, you, you're, you know, you were here on earth for such a short time, you know, let's enjoy a different, a variety of different, uh, you know, flavors and, and tastes and sights and sounds. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's all here for a reason. Um, and uh, each composer, again, however much merit you want to put on their plate, you know, to, to their name, um, you know, deserves some, uh, you know, some respect and some, you know, at least one listening, you know, one, one, uh, one run through. So, um, but uh, it, it's a challenging, it's a challenging world uh, artistically to, you know, to be able to get through that. I mean, we ourselves know that, you know, if I'm going to put on something by King Crimson, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to that era or I'm going to listen to, you know, that particular album because that's sort of like my favorite type of, you know, it's my favorite. That's fine. You know, that's fine. But, um, but always to you know to, to diversify a little and, and make the, the 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 way everything sits on the plate you know just a little bit more appetizing a little more more challenging so to speak so yeah very cool um, so one question I have I was going to go through like a rundown of all the different classical periods you know just give a brief little overview of what you know, classical music was how it evolved real quick, but I think we're going to be too short on time for me to go and do that justice. So uh, um, one thing I do want to mention is uh, there's a lot of metal aspects in classical music. We kind of touched upon, you know, Sostakovich a little bit, but uh, even, you know, uh, delving into like the, the romantic period, which the romantic period was a rejection of, or reaction to the, uh, the classicism before, you know, the Mozarts and, uh, I, I think I introduced Krauss to you, which Krauss is really cool. Um, it was like the Swedish Mozart. Um, but uh, it was kind of like a reaction to how formal classicism was back then where, you know, Beethoven and your words blew out the walls or, you know, something along those lines with a really uh, defying convention back then. And, you know, people got on board eventually, but that third symphony was uh, had mixed reviews. But uh um, so with that, with this expansion of creativity and high emotion and all that in a, the Romantic period, um, some of those composers delved into very metal topics. Um, uh, I know from one of the listeners of this podcast, he requested us to uh, discuss a little bit about Mussorgsky, uh, Berlioz, um, and you know composers like that, which... Uh, can you elaborate a little bit about a symphony fantastic if you can? I know it's a very metal type of thing about uh, the, you know, um, uh, Berlioz taking uh, opium, I believe, and going on this like fever dream where eventually he gets beheaded and there's like a witch's Sabbath and all that. 
Yeah, well, and again, probably from my understanding of most metal, you know, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to label it, but, you know, it, it does tend to be kind of dark and to delve into the psyche and, and, and sort of like following along with that, that, uh, that whole fascination with the macabre. Um, I mean, all of the late romantic was, was just fascinated with death, you know, the D.A. Cire. Um, you can find it, you know, we talked about this in class, you can find it everywhere. You can find it um, in, in uh, you know, uh, Disney movies, you know, you, you know, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, it's, it's all quoted in there. Um, so there was this over unhealthy fascination with death. Um, Symphony Fantastique was probably, you know, we use it in the textbooks because it was kind of like the culmination of, of, you know, the ultimate, not just, you know, sad sorrow, uh, law, a long, a lost, uh, you know, love, you know, um, you know, unrequited and, you know, lost love, et cetera, but, but, you know, murder of your beloved, you know, whom you were fascinated so, you know, ardently with. And so it, it speaks to the other end, the extreme of, of the emotions. Um, and, um, of course, Berlioz also, you know, he, he does quote the D.A. Cire, um, from the 13th century, uh, it's a chant for the mass of the dead. And, um, uh, and kind of mocks it because the, the, the end result that, you know, we can still see in Don Giovanni, you know, man, you know, Don Giovanni has committed these great sins and, but there's a price to pay and he pays for it here on earth. Um, and, and, and so in a sense, uh, our hero in, um, somebody fantastic also pays a price for his misdeeds and, and the afterlife is not really pleasant. You know, he's, in, in the fifth movement, he is uh, judged for his uh, his misdeeds, his sins, and he's exposed to the the, the hellish uh, torments of uh, of demons and everything else. Um, so uh, you know, so so that's like you know, I mean, that just takes it to a whole new level. Berlioz was incredible in in what he did with that, because not only just with the, the thematic um, you know development of that that uh, idea. Of death and despair, but also um, with the orchestra, because uh, as our co-host was saying, you know, he he really um, expanded the orchestra some some weird instruments and weird techniques uh, that are very common today that we don't, you know, string players uh, whatever percussionists don't even really you know think about because thanks to Berlioz. Um, so he, he was really on the cutting edge of that. He wrote it when he was 26 years old and, and really amazing, uh, sound. He also wrote a book on the instrumentation, um, the orchestration and, uh, like Stravinsky's a teacher did Rinsky Korsakoff. So he, he was very well of the, the, the developments of instruments, the French horn later, um, you know, being a, a more developed instrument, of course, the timpani, what he did, he was a timpanist by, by the way, um, in, in his college and, uh, he uh, so he he was able to you know use the instruments as they were developing and use techniques um, even for the violins you know as, as as he saw fit so he heard different things he definitely he definitely was a man uh, of another world <laughs> he heard things that you know uh, Bernstein talks about you know him being uh, you know something fantastic likened to uh, uh, the um, the pastoral symphony of Beethoven with Beethoven yeah nice scene in the country. And, you know, uh, of course, a storm comes and we can think, you know, that's uh, 
you know, adverse uh, reaction to the storm or we're going to rain on our parade type of thing. But um, but uh, Bernstein's scene in the country was extremely um, dramatic, um, almost psychotic. Um, so you see that, you know, this was, uh, uh, you know, it was just how many years? It's a couple couple decades after Beethoven died. You know, here we are in the in the 20th century um, with these uh, with these type of uh, um, you know sounds and expressions uh, delving into the darkest. I always just say, dark, dark uh, delving into the darkest recesses of the human soul <laughs> and mind. Yeah, yeah, and I think Schubert was you know gaining a lot of you know steam after like 20 years of uh, Beethoven when Beethoven finally got popular. Um, and you know, Schubert was really well versed in philosophy. He was befriended a lot of a uh, philosopher, like people in that type of crowd. Um, and uh, he had some you know really cool themes with his music. And one funny thing is like Schubert was really short. And if you look at pictures of him, like people referred to him as a uh, the little mushroom <laughs> back then. Um, I, I read about that you know some years back. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he wrote. I mean, he wrote beautiful you know beautiful songs. But, you know, you look at the Elking, Elkenig, um, which was about, you know, death and, and, and the death of a child. And, and, and there was no, you know, sort of like that was like the final sentence. You know, there was, you know, uh, the, 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 probably the most you know, bleak is, experience a parent could, you know, ex, uh, could live through, you know, death of a child. But, um, you know, he beautifully said that in, in just, you know, under five minutes. Um, and, and, uh, and so there was like, you know, in Mozart, we, we kind of, okay, we have a glimpse of hope. There's a little hope. And, but in the later composers, we don't have that hope, you know, they don't give it to us anymore. And we're left to fend for ourselves and, you know, to, to kind of draw out of the, you know, it's like, you know, it's like they're really touching into the soul. And, um, we, we had known tragedy, you know, bubonic plague and the, you know, the, the, uh, the wars and wars of you know religious wars throughout Europe, but um, but you know these kinds of things were were, uh, were really kind of brought to light um, in in, uh, in in the late Romantic era into the 20th century. But you know that, of course that, that's a whole different discussion. We talk about the 20th century, the dilemma of the 20th century, and how composers dealt with that. You know because you had pop and jazz, you know, battling against you know the old standards, you know, the Beethoven and um and uh and and so w what what do we do where do we go it's like a child that's that's lost in the forest and and we don't know we don't know how they're going to find their way home if they find their way home if they reach the other side we're, we're, we're kind of left with that you know um dilemma of, of the question a lingering question did they make it <laughs> you know we have to decide for ourselves you know what picture do you want to paint um and i think that's what composers in the 21st century have given us in 20th century and the late Romantic era have given us the, you know, the, the opportunity to not place a judgment upon, you know, uh, the end result, but just be able to draw from our own experiences, what, uh, you know, what they're trying to convey. Um, you know, we go back to Shostakovich, you know, there's, you know, he, 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 he expresses a lot of emotion in his music in the fifth symphony and, you know, all, all through Baba Yaga, you know, you know uh, symphony number 13, um, but we read, and of course, some of the emotions are inherent. I mean, he's writing from an experience, but we ourselves can look into and project our own, um, you know, emotions into those, you know, kinds of 
kinds of uh, situations. And I think that's the beauty, of course, of music is that we can share as a human experience, um, you know, the, the, the happy, the light, the sad, the sorrow. Um, I think those are important, you know, ways we communicate as humanity, you know, and of course, artists leave that to us. Um, so uh, we have, uh, you know, the option of, you know, looking at it the way we want to interpret it, you know, with, without not destroying, you know, the composer's original intent, you know, to some extent, right? You know, you want to leave some of the, uh, the true nature of their, their statement, you know, intact. So it's interesting, um, just. So, yeah, because a lot of the romantic composers, they were very preoccupied with death, but a lot of them died very young as well. Like Schubert died very young, Chopin died very young. Uh, later, uh, Mahler was uh, ill for most of his life as well, wasn't he? Um, and, I mean, obviously that's that was a feature, that was like a fact of life um, back then, before then. Um, just mortality in general was much higher. Uh, but the thing that, that distinguished the romantic era was the fact that it, it was a very personal um, artistic communication of, you know, as you mentioned, sort of very kind of deep inner thoughts of the artist. And that's true of not just music, but of uh, literature and poetry and um, the fine arts as well. Um, you see this sort of great personal outpouring where the artist is placed front and center. They're not sort of commissioned the piece to express something more collective, um, which I think, yeah, was sort of the legacy that came through in the 20th century. But um, to lead on to what, what you were talking about, just then in terms of how did how did classical music respond to contemporary music how did it respond to jazz and later blues and rock and roll um and this is again this is where i kind of lose the plot i get to stravinsky i get to schoenberg um and then i my knowledge kind of drops off i'm i know i have a part i really love his music as well but i just wonder if i could ask you like in terms of like modern classical music, and this may be too broad a question to ask, uh, ask but um, I'll ask it anyway. Um, in terms of sort of contemporary classical music, by contemporary, I mean uh, 50 years plus, um, mm -hmm. to what extent has it kind of assimilated contemporary music, whether that be jazz or blues or just plain old pop music? To what extent has it tried to kind of um, assimilate the methodology and theory of just your standard pop like music into classical and has it sort of contributed to the evolution of the music or has it been a detriment or is the jury still out? Um, yeah, no, I can answer that, you know, from experience of last month, we played with the Victoria Symphony, we played a, a electric guitar concerto uh, written by, I believe he's a, a Juilliard composer, Kenneth Fuchs. I don't think he was there when, when I was studying there. Um, and, um, and by all means, it had all the, you know, sounds of, uh, you know, the orchestra, you know, the, 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 you know, the battery, the percussion, um, the, the, the uh, expressions of, you know, the violin and, and the winds, but it was, the soloist was, a, was an electric guitarist. And, um, you know, sometimes, uh, very, he played very melodically, it was the music, he was, you know, his solo was very melodic and sometimes, it was the electric guitar, you know, the effects that, you know, how are they written? I didn't look at the page, you know, but, but I didn't look at his music, but, um, but sometimes, you know, you would hear, you know, slides and, you know, uh, you know, some harsh sounds and, and cadenzas. So there is a perfect example of, of, of the marriage of, of, of an instrument that doesn't belong in the orchestra, but it was there. And, you know, whatever, 
whatever instrument you know as a as a as a as a front man could could be i mean if electric if an electric guitar could be used and certainly you know um you know you could have a bass guitar and i think too with uh with jazz musicians um a wonderful composer um uh, uh, went to went to school with one of his relatives uh, michelle camillo um wonderful jazz uh, composer but you know he's written stuff that's now with orchestra um he, i mentioned go back to tony banks uh, i was surprised i was looking for some string music and i thought what tony banks and it's like yeah you can look at him on youtube and he's written for some stuff for orchestra now so um uh, of course when emerson Lincoln palmer went you know went on tour with an orchestra and bankrupted themselves <laughs> uh, because they use union musicians. I'm nothing against unions. Don't get political here, but they, they, <laughs> could, they could have done it a different way and not gone broke. But um, but they didn't ask me to manage the, the tour. Um, uh, yeah. So I mean, the the the, uh, the the field is is ripe for expression. You know, continuing to um, you know being to meld you know jazz and with classical and uh, rock and you know classical etc. And, and 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 also in the vein of you know contemporary music you know wh- whatever that means um back in 1985 um another juilliard composer uh well she went to juilliard but uh, uh um ellen um violet tafe i think that's her last name i just pronounced her last name uh she wrote 1985 she wrote a, a harpsichord concerto and it's her music you can hear you can hear her own theme but she borrows very gratuitously she borrows a, a theme by um, by Handel, and, um, and and just sort of like in the fashion of Baroque concerto, uh, uh, concerto grosso, I should say, with harpsichord, etc. So, 19, 1985, we're already talking, you know, 40 years almost, you know. So, uh, at, with respect to your question, yeah, going back, you know, it's already been happening. I mean, Bernstein tried to do the same thing. He was enthralled with everything that was going on jesus christ superstar you know in the 70s um he wrote his mass um and and it didn't yield to so much a lot of critical acclaim because some he just panned it as like too much of everything you know it was like what is it you know so i think you can you can you can overdo it but uh, like i i said go back to this example that i i mentioned this kenneth fuchs concerto for for electric guitar I mean, it was wonderful. It was wonderful to play. It was a five movement concerto. I know we taught you concerti or in three movements, but you know, there's the paradigm broken there. Um, and, and so, it, you know, it, it's wonderful to see, um, you know, not just cut and paste and not just put this, put on that, but really a melding of, you know, instruments of today, of styles of today being blended with, you know, our, our form, of concerto, symphony, whatever, string quartet, whatever it is. So um, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of metal bands, bigger metal bands, I should say, have either recorded with orchestras or toured with them. I know Metallica has. I think Nightwish has. Um, Cradle of Filth definitely used them on Damnation in a Day and a couple of other albums. Um, the mm-hmm. other, the other sort of, I guess, main entry point for modern listeners is obviously film film scores as well. And people, yeah. uh, classical music aficionados, tend to sort of turn their nose up at that and be like, "It's not, it's not real classical." But so many people oh, I've spoken no. to that like classical now, they say that that was their way in, like the, the score to Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever. It's popular yeah. stuff, but it's like it gets people at least interested. It's their foot in the door into sort of listening to more 
um, more challenging or abrasive stuff. Conan the Barbarian wow. has a great soundtrack, and you know that could be a segue into like a lot of neo folk, uh, like Lord Wind and things like that. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's this element of uh, the classical music textures, especially in those bands that you um, just mentioned, and like Jimmy Borgir. That's more of like carnival music. Like they take the soundtracky elements of an orchestra and you know copying paste it on the metal where they really dumb down the guitars in order for the orchestra to breathe a, a little bit but still the the what they're communicating with the orchestra is nowhere near on par as a full legit classical symphony so uh i'm sorry for jumping on you uh professor no no that's fine like um no, i was yeah. just saying i was just sort of using it to draw a comparison and say like yeah, it is sort of very basic stuff by classical music standards, but it is still like a foot in the door for, say, a young listener that's totally unfamiliar with it. Like in the same way that, you know, a popular film score could be the same kind of, you know, gateway. And, and not only, it's a great point, not only pop, you know, not only film music, I, we're not even talking about gaming music. I've, I've played a whole set with the Victoria Symphony, just gaming music, and some of it's fantastic. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, I did a, a tour. Not, I didn't actually tour. Part of the, the tour was Zelda, and I'd never heard of Zelda. My kid wasn't old enough to play Zelda, you know. But um, the music was, I, I was, it's more difficult than John Williams and Mahler. The, the, the timpani parts were extremely difficult. Um, I mean, and it was wonderful to play. The music was very good. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say just very good. It was great. I mean, I really enjoyed playing it. Uh, very challenging. So, um, you know, we don't know where music is going to go next, you know, what the next technolo technological advance and how that's going to, um, you know, open up doors for composers. Um, you know, uh, you know, I mean, everyone knows John Williams. I mean, John Williams could be, you know, aside from his, you know, legit stuff that he does, you know, for his classical, straight ahead classical stuff. Um, actually, too, I think we played, uh, they played the um, Catch Me If You Can, the music for, this, for the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can. Um, uh, and it, it's, it's basically a saxophone concerto. Um, and so, um, you know, those kinds of things are just really, uh, um, you know, really unique. It, it, it's a whole new, with technology, it's a whole new um, avenue to, to explore. For composers and that's that's a great thing great thing very cool i i had no idea you were playing uh nintendo music with zelda uh that's, that's hilarious um but I, I i think i've heard i played a couple of zelda games when i was a kid and i remember the soundtracks and the, the melodies were really good um when i was playing those games but uh just to kind of wrap up this podcast on a very light topic um something that should resonate with you both. Um, so I want to kind of know your favorite composers. I want to start with Shelley first, because I know professor, um, it could be end up being like 30 minutes. Why yeah. these specific composers are your favorite, but uh, um, Shelley, I do want to ask you um, who your favorite composers are. And I know you both share Mahler. So go ahead and start with Mahler. Well, yeah, we can start with Mahler. Um, I was a latecomer to him, and it's thanks in part to uh, the lecture series by Leonard Bernstein that you mentioned earlier on. Um, I got to watching that during lockdown, and um, the Mahler episode, uh, after watching that, and he performs uh, a movement from a symphony, and um, yeah, it, I was a convert after that. But in terms of other composers, to con entirely contradict our earlier discussion around... Um, 
listening to new or interesting classical music, I my favourites tend to be very uh, typical, and there won't be any surprises. Um, but as as a as someone that plays piano as a hobby, nowhere near to a sort of professional standard at all. But I I try and play classical piano in my own time when I can. So I tend towards piano music specifically. Uh, obviously Bach because he writes pieces that are still challenging and engaging but are accessible for beginners um, alongside the more really technical stuff um, Beethoven because um, obviously he's written some of the most iconic classical pieces um, in history and you can't really argue with that um, I really enjoy Schubert as well um, for the very sort of personal kind of lyrical aspect to a lot of his music going through as well Chopin obviously composed entirely for the piano so um, he's also gets in um, sort of moving on to later, I never really got Wagner, even though I'm supposed to as a metalhead. I do persist with him, but I still struggle. I um, really like Grieg as well, um, his lyrical pieces, although some of them are beyond me in terms of technical skill, um, they're still a joy to play. And then moving into more modern stuff, I've recently really got into Eric Satie, um, sort of coming back to that minimal question of like, he'd he came in at a point when romanticism had reached kind of its zenith of mm. bombast and melodrama and Eric Satie peeled it back and at some points tried to parody it as well, very minimal piano music. And uh, he was also considered a forerunner to kind of modern ambient, but he's also, he was never sort of formally trained or anything. So a lot of his pieces are very accessible for an amateur pianist as well and really enjoyable to play. Um, and more recently I've been, trying to get into Stravinsky and I've been trying to get into Schoenberg because um, that's the next step along the way if we're talking chronological order but Schoenberg that not, I haven't managed to crack yet it's too too chromatic and weird and dissonant for me to get yet but um, who knows and then obviously Arthur Parr as well we're speaking of more modern composers so yeah that's a that's a very brief rundown of uh, composers I've been enjoying recently. Any thoughts on that professor as well as your own personal favorites? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great, uh, that's a great, uh, uh, panorama of, of a good diet to, you know, music to listen to. Um, you, I, I don't, I don't typically listen to music. I mean, I know it's maybe same sounds strange. I, 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 whatever I'm working on, um, you know, either professionally or my own solos that I'm, I've, I've been, uh, trying to go through and record, um, that's kind of what gets in my head. Um, I, I listen to music in the in the car. I do listen to classical music and jazz, um, but um, I, at home I don't really listen to music. I, I just I'm, I'm too busy doing stuff, or I've got like a radio playing in my head all the time. <laughs> just pull up something, but it, um, yeah. So it'd really be hard to say. Um, I mean, I, you know, any any from Bach, you know, anything Mozart, Beethoven, you know, it's just sort of like whatever's on the radio, I'll I'll, I'll listen to and. And of course, uh, um, anything in between. But um, I do, you know, listen to a lot, a lot of in the car. I mean, I'll listen to jazz, and I'll listen to go back between jazz and classical. Um, of course, classical being my because that's my art, and and I want to hear you know different pieces. And I think our radio station, uh, local radio station, does a pretty good job with that. You know, sometimes they they tend to like to play the Concerto de Aranjuez and and uh, Lee Celli by uh, by Respighi and um, you know some other pieces that are just didn't I just hear that last week? <laughs> but uh, but they're they're doing a good job. 
Um, so um, I would just encourage in, you know any anybody everybody to to listen to more some more a, a good radio station that, that you're you know can expose you um, to get you out of your your norm um, you know whether it be jazz or classical um, it, you know and uh, you know whatever whatever can you know can give you more uh, insight and as, as to what's out there. Um, you know, whether it's film music or, you know, straight absolute music by Bach or, you know, whatever it is, you know, um, there, there's so much wonderful music that, you know, you could listen to a radio station, you know, a good radio station, you know, 24 hours and, you know, a good radio station that is, and, uh, and still, you know, be blown away by the, the magnitude of, of the, of the, the repertoire, um, that we've accumulated over the centuries. So, um, Yeah. I'll, I'll certainly well, echo I, I the. Dissuade, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll dissuade from you know enumerating on you know my favorite composers because you know, just sort of like yeah I kind of I like that I like that <laughs> you know I'm easy. <laughs> I have I've heard you mention Mahler before. That's why I kind of drew a parallel with you and Shelley about sharing that. Um, so I, I will certainly echo the sentiment that you said about the local radio station. I mean, here in San Antonio, we do have a good one, uh, KPAC. Um, which I've actually called in or I wrote them an email and I got them to play a uh, Bruckner's ninth in its totality, um, which, you know, so, you know it was, even though it's just three movements it's still over an hour long and uh, they actually had the, the conductor I wanted. And uh, I was really glad they did that, but I've discovered quite a bit of, uh, you know, other things via that radio station. I remember one time we we're about to meet up for lunch and I was like, man, I was just listening to a piece that sounded like Brahms. And uh, it happened to be a Mendelssohn's Fifth Symphony, the Reformation. And <laughs> I was like, I, I always thought there was, he only had four symphonies, you know. Um, and I, I just was never big on that uh, composer. And <clears throat> so I... I heard the fifth and I thought this must be some like Brahms piece I've never heard before, but lo and behold, it was Mendelssohn. And uh, I, 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 I think it's perhaps, you know, the, the best symphony by far that he's written. Um, so yeah, the, the, the radio, is, I agree. Yeah. The radio station here, you know, I'm sure in other cities too, that they have a good, good classical music station where they're able to delve into uh, non cookie cutter repertoire. Um, I, I've, you know, of course, you know, the, there's, you know, a lot of Baroque, you know, cookie cutter Baroque and stuff on there, but um, eventually they do delve into, you know, especially at night, some of the more obscure composers and all of that. So definitely share that sentiment. I've learned, you know, discovered a lot of great uh, classical music from our uh, local radio station. So just to kind of end this episode, Shelly, do you have any final thoughts, any final questions? Um, oh, just a final thought, really, for, for anyone listening is um, if you're looking, if you're new to classical and you're looking to get into it, it can be intimidating because we're talking about the best part of four centuries worth of music plus, um, And a lot of the composers, they have written, you know, well over 100 pieces, sometimes more. And if you're looking at like a modern band and they've released 10 albums, it can be like, oh, where do I start? but we're talking about composers that have put out pieces their entire lives. Um, and some of them are very lengthy and challenging, but I would just say as a piece of advice is keep at it, start with, start with the popular stuff. Um, and when you find a piece or a style or a form that you like, investigate it more in this day and age, Google is your friend, and just 
keep plugging away because that'll be your your foot in um, to a new world. And it can be large and intimidating, but there's there's a vast array of music out there. It's not all, as you said, cookie cutter, baroque or quartets or whatever. Some of it's very harsh and some of it's very exciting. Um, and yeah, just um, do a bit of research and um, you never know what you might discover. 100% share that sentiment. Um, so I'm not going to say who my favorite composers are. I just wanted to pick both of your brains on that because I think, you know, anyone who knows me knows who I love the most. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. And uh, I, I definitely want to thank you both for being on the program today. Uh, Shelly, you're always a great co-host. And Professor, thank you very much for taking the time to come on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, anytime. Anytime. Ask me. Uh, we can talk about different subjects, yeah. But uh, it's a pleasure to have me. Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, for uh, listening to my ideas and and in great hearing your ideas as well, Shelley and Jason. Oh yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Yep, I still owe you a lunch. I know we've postponed it like three times now, so eventually we should sync up and have lunch again. Um, oh, me? Yeah, you, Shelley's no, in England. No. You no, we, you certainly don't owe me one, but yeah, we, we, anytime, yeah, we, we can definitely get together. Yeah. 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 Miss Senior, always great to hang out with you. So thank you very much. And I'm going to end this episode with Bruckner's Ninth Symphony. Adios. Okay. Bye bye.